Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How are you doing? We have something really special for our listeners today. We have three separate interviews with key members of the sound team on the new film Mary Poppins Returns, directed by Rob Marshall. They tell us about how they pulled the soundtrack together, both from a sound design perspective as well as a mixing perspective. We have the re-recording mix engineer Michael Keller, who handled the Foley and the sound effects mix. We also have Renee Tondelli, she was a co-supervising sound editor. And why don't you introduce our first guest, Renee? It's Mike Prestwood-Smith. Mike was a re-recording mixer for Deepwater Horizon, Mission Impossible Fallout, Captain Phillips, for which he got an Oscar nomination, and Quantum of Solace, and of course, Mary Poppins Returns, which both Tim and I watched over the weekend, and I, I really loved it. Hey, Mike, how are you, sir? Very good. Nice to meet you both. It's really nice to talk to you. Likewise. Likewise. Mike is joining us from the Alps. That might be our most exotic location a guest has phoned in from yet. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Vilar in Switzerland, which is a little village high up in just above Lausanne. I know it sounds very exotic, doesn't it? Uh, we're very jealous. You win. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, uh, why don't you go ahead and spell out for us what your role was on, on the film on Mary Poppins Returns? Okay, so I am a dialogue music mixer. On bigger movies, we tend to have two of us mixing, and I, it often takes someone concentrating on dialogue and music and someone just concentrating on effects. So it's a two-hander. I worked with my, other, my mixing partner, Mike Keller, uh, who we've done many films together. Um, and uh, Mary Poppins was a sort of revisit for us with our director, Rob Marshall, who we recently worked with in uh, 2014 on Into the Woods. Um, in fact, it was a revisit for everybody, pretty much. The whole crew was uh, reunited for uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, we had such a great time on Into the Woods that I think Rob realised there was a lovely sort of energy between us all and a good shorthand and we got to where he wanted pretty quickly. And uh, I think he thought, let's get them all back together again. And um, so he did. So that was my role very much, you know, on that show as it was with Into the Woods. And in fact, um, I also did nine for him. Uh, I guess that was in 2009, I think. So I've worked with Rob three times now. So um, that's how we got going. It really helps to have long-standing, um, I, I guess, crews and teams that have, that have done multiple projects together, you start to develop a shorthand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny. When we got back together for this one, it was really like a, a family. You know, we, we there's everyone knew the dynamic and we all understood what we were all going to bring. And, you know, we knew uh, our temperaments and weaknesses. And we're all in New York, which pretty much for most of us was not our home territory. So it was a bit like a sort of summer camp, you know. <laughs> It really helps having that shorthand with people massively. I mean, Rene Tondelli, our, our sound supervisor, I've worked with many times, so we have a we have a great shorthand. So it really makes a massive difference. And so, as dialogue and music, I mean, obviously, for this is a Mary Poppins musical. Um, so you had you had a lot of heavy weight on your shoulders for this. When you first signed on, what were your first steps? What were the, what was the way that you decided to approach it before you actually saw anything coming in? Well, having having done Into the Woods with Rob and and Nine before. I think probably one of the most useful things I brought was a, a, a pretty clear understanding of his aesthetic in terms of what, what he looks for out of his films and what he wants the music and the sound to be like. So I knew even before watching the movie kind of what, what it was probably going to feel like in terms of the aesthetic. But I think until I watched it, I didn't realise how beautifully sort of uh, charming this film was. Yeah, You know, people have called it an homage to the original, and it is, but it has a beautiful charm to it that 
it's really hard to get. You just you can't really legislate for that stuff. You can't write that stuff in a script. You can't cast people to bring that. It just happens. So when I watched it, my first feeling was like it was a, a kind of classic, absolute vintage classic sort of movie that needed to be treated with real care and attention and detail. And, and all the crafts in this film have been really um, lovingly applied. And Rob is a, a, is a fantastic um, director to work for because he, he sort of... Um, he manages to get you to bring the best you can without ever pushing you into it. He sort of just encourages you to, to sort of find something better than what you might do. Otherwise he's a, he's a great leader. Rob is a very structured kind of guy. He's, he has a very clear process. Uh, the whole workflow is very sort of considered and, uh, you can run your watch by the way things go. It's so the opposite of most of my experiences on the mix stage where, it's usually chaos and carnage. <laughs> Somehow the film comes out and it's like, Rob is, you know, real structured, very ordered, very considered. And, uh, and it's lovely to work for, a, for someone with that sort of clarity and also a single voice, you know, someone that's, that's bringing a, one aesthetic to the screen. It's quite difficult to find directors with that sort of authority and, and, and who, who a big studio like Disney are going to say, yeah, have $130 million and, and make us a movie. You know, there aren't many of those around. He's a real class act. So it was great working for that, knowing exactly what we're in for. I mean, I can elaborate, if you want, on the structure of the way things go with him. I'd love to hear that. I was That's the thing I was going to dive into, because when you're saying structure, I'd love to hear any kind of specifics that you can reveal. Rob has his director's cut after he finishes shooting the movie. And because it's a musical and it's, it's extremely complex to cut together in terms of picture, but in, also in terms of music, there's a full score recorded at the director's cut uh, with all the vocals, everything pre-recorded, everything done. And then we go into a huge sort of three-week temp dub, which is basically where everything happens. It's, I think until Rob sees it sort of 95% complete, he, he can't really gauge what it is he's got. And I don't mean that critically. I just think he wants to get it very close to being done before he starts taking the bits, the last bits out that he doesn't want. So everyone has to be on their A game right from the beginning. So all scores recorded, every instrument split, all the vocals are pre-recorded. They go to British Grove in London and do this mini score where you have all the instruments split off so the, all the music editors can literally cut this stuff to fit the picture as it evolves. So you can, you can maintain a full played recording of everything that's going on whilst still remaining fluid with the picture. It's kind of a unique situation. And then you do this huge temp dub and everything, you, you literally just have to just somehow make a final sounding movie in about 10 days it's just it's <laughs> absolute carnage you know you literally you're, you're working every second of the day to get it to that point um but it's incredibly formative and and one of the things i love about it is it's um because it's so sort of quick you have to go down the road quite fast you tend to make very clear instinctive decisions about things and so one of the things about temp dubs i've always loved is that they're very creative you you don't have time to chin stroke you you kind of go this is this is it and you make judgments very quickly. And, and often those instinctive judgments are the things that define it sound-wise. You know, they, they never really go, once you've done them, they sort of somehow, they either stick or they don't. They, they work there and then or they don't. And you move on, you find the one that does work and then you move on. And often it's those quick decisions, those fast things that actually become the cornerstones of the way you go with it. So it's, a, it's an incredibly creative process. I, I love doing it. Once we've done that, 
film screened and you know everyone chips in the studio everybody there's a full sort of recruitment screening it then becomes finished picture and then the whole thing happens again yeah there's a whole new record of the whole orchestra gets recorded all over again oh really <laughs> everything happens again rather than having these little orchestrations you have the full orchestra and when we come to the final mix we carry both versions the whole way so at any point rob says well i i prefer the way things were and that song or this song or i like I like the orchestra from the first version in this bit, but I want to go to the main orchestra in this bit. We're constantly toing and froing between the tent mix we did and the final versions all the whole time. So it's incredibly wide, complex procedure. Everything we've done before is always there, but everything new is there too, so we can always weave in and out. It's, it's, it's a complex thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing as well. So how are the vocals delivered to you in the songs so that you can get them into the production dialogue on the ins and outs and such? Are you asking them to just give them to you naked with no schna or do they come produced? No, uh, it's really, it's, <laughs> it's quite complex. Well, when Rob cuts the movie together with Wyatt, his editor, they have, they have the pre-recorded vocals done, which they've already had in British Grove. Then they record live on set. So the actors will have, either in ears or they'll have live playback playing as they sing. And then Rob will often pick a lot of the live stuff he likes because often that there's an energy with the live stuff that you're never going to get in the pre-record. For sure. Yep. So he'll choose a lot of that, but then he'll go back to the pre-record stuff for things that aren't so good or don't work so well. And if, if none of those things work, then we do a post-record. So they'll literally uh, do another version after. So often you end up with several different types of recordings that you're having to work with and weave in and out of. Um, what happens is Wyatt will put that together within the Avid, but obviously in terms of a mix, they're, they're quite different sounding and really a lot of the work that I do is making those vocals feel integrated and genuine and consistent so that you never ever really feel the variation going from production dialogue to live vocal to pre-record. That's probably the biggest challenge for me personally with this is to get that working but also retaining the clarity of the vocal because a lot of the narrative is tied up in the in in the vocal uh, word in the words of the vocals themselves so you can never be get lost you, it's not like a needle drop where you just go okay we're gonna have a musical moment it's all of it is tightly woven the whole way and often they'll be singing and then you're going back to production dialogue for a few lines and then you'll return to the singing and the whole thing has to feel like it's one thing like it's like you never question it you never really go, oh, they're getting, they're singing now or they're not singing now. It's a very, very subtle thing that's that's weirdly takes a lot of time to get right. Often people think the big loud movies are the ones that are hard. And yeah, they can be. But it's interesting that the, the, the sort of difficulty of getting something to feel right and real and genuine is a real tightrope act. It's, you know, a little bit of foley, a little cloth move, a little just something can just be enough to like bridge the gap between sort of reality and non-reality you know it's fascinating yeah it's nice when you have a nice giant explosion to hide all of the subtleties in eh? (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly the the moments where all of that really came together with me for me anyway was the lyrics because I, i i was just loving the the uh the ladders the very specific kind of thick wood ladder that they had going on anyway and in the in the moment where they're doing their whole thing, there's all this foley, there's all this ladder stuff. It's all happening in tempo. It's all in line with the music. It's all playing and working together. And I can tell that that you guys have so much going on. And 
And what's going on in my mind as, as someone that knows that I'm going to be talking to you later is I'm trying to break down how this even happened, right? <laughs> because are your Foley people like that rhythmically good or was it captured that perfectly on set? Or, you know, how did that, any of that even go down? I don't think a single bit of that whole 10-minute sequence is live. Man, I believed all of it. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Um, no, the Foley on it is extraordinary. Uh, they spent a long time editing that stuff and bouncing it back and forward with Wyatt to get the picture trimmed here and there to make it feel in time with what their sounds were. It's a real process to get that done. And once that's all right, all the pieces right, then to make it dynamic and sort of uh, uh, dramatic in terms of sound levels, you know, you've really, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a big number. It's a big sort of Broadway thing and it's got to feel exciting and and yet you're trying to get you know a little foot scrapes through and little little subtle, subtle moves to time things out it's it's a complex thing to get right but we you know we had the time and we we had a, a great team of people just all going the same way so we all know what we, we all knew what we wanted so it was a uh, great fun to do you mentioned that it was mixed in new york city you're based in London. Renee, the sound designer, is based in L.A., I believe. Why did you guys all meet in New York? Well, Rob, Rob lives in New York. There you go. Uh, I would say that's probably why. <laughs> you mentioned that, that Rob had a way of, of bringing out the best in you and, and of pushing you. Can you give me an example of that? It's hard to explain. He's just got a way of, um, of really demanding very best out of you without ever you feeling like he's being unreasonable <laughs> he's just got a way of going mm, that doesn't quite work and you kind of go yeah i know you're right doesn't quite okay yeah i'm gonna do it I'm, I'm gonna go a little better i know i'm gonna spend a bit more time getting that right an example would be the first song in the in the movie is uh in the attic with ben wishaw when he does a song called conversation where he's recounting the loss of his wife and it's very very delicate it literally is line for line, like one line is production, one line is pre-record, one line is post-record. Each line comes from a totally different place. He's moving around this attic. If I could play the track as it, as it played without anything, any work on it, it literally sounds almost ridiculous because it's so different. And so there was a lot of work to get his vocal feeling right feeling real and there's a bit when he comes up to the window and he, he I can't remember the line, he says something about Cherry Tree Lane and he comes back. Uh, into the room again he says the document the document um he's looking for something and it's it's all very live sounding i just knew that it, especially it being the first vocal of the film it just had to be basically perfect before i could even play it to rob <laughs> i just knew there was no point in it being anything but completely believable and it just took me a long time to go yeah you know that's pretty good uh, if i was pushed i could say that's fine but i know it's not quite hundred percent so i'm just going to keep going until it's a hundred percent so uh, he's just that guy he just makes you you want to bring your your a game he's just that's just what he does i think those those leaders that ask for you to to be the best rather than kind of push you into it or, or bully you into it in any way you know uh, they're always the best ones because they inspire you they want you to be the best version of what you are you know and that's what he does so when you come across that scene for the first time and you hit play and everything sounds like it's coming from different spots. What's going through your head? Are you thinking, okay, let's dig into this and are you excited or are you overwhelmed by the co the uh, task at hand? No, God, no, no. I, I, I would like to think I'm not overwhelmed, no. I, I look at it as a challenge. You know, I often think mixing is it's a craft. It's a, totally a craft. It's like 
turning a really lovely chair or, or a pot or something, you know, it's something that you learn over years, what your process is to get to where you want it to be. So a lot of the moves you make are instinctive. I mean, when I'm EQing, I don't ever look at the board. I'm looking at the screen. There's a point at which you become so familiar with your tools that you forget really what a lot of the process is. You know, it's just you're, you're sort of doing stuff instinctively. And so I, I don't ever doubt that I can I can do that and bring and and I I, I just see it as a te- as a challenge and not just a technical one but a creative one. And so when I when the vocal for that was all over the place, the first thing I think is right. How can I integrate this stuff? Where where do I start in terms of just finding the the sort of denominator, the line that will tie these vocals together? You know what what is it that's going to make this work in terms of you know what frequencies can I get this stuff into? What room can I put it in? What what sort of compression can I be looking at? You, you just start thinking about those things straight away. What tools can I bring to this? There, there's a particularly difficult bit when he goes in the, around the room. I ended up just throwing everything I had at that section that I, that I knew how to do in order to slowly sort of bring the audio from sort of a fairly high bandwidth thing to a pretty pretty crunchy audio recording and it's no fault of anyone's that it got to that point he's right by a window it's really resonant he's in a boxy corner of the attic so to transition to that and then come back again without ever feeling it shift was a line for line sort of eq perspective thing that and some matching and all sorts of stuff going on so you you know it's that stuff that you just start thinking of straight away how am i going to get there you know and then there are other sections like the royal taunton hall um where it's huge performance, hundreds of vocal tracks, and and that's just a that's a logistics thing. It's like you you have to come at it in chunks, in stages. You know, you have to look at each vocal, lead vocals, then you go backing vocals, then music track, and then you just start breaking it down into pieces. Where unless you do it in bits, you'll never get it done. It's like mixing a record. You know, you start with your bass and drums, and then you start bringing everything else in. It's a similar process. It's you start with the cornerstone of the sound, and then you just hang things off that you know and i guess part of the skill is understanding what that is at that point you know making a judgment on what's the most important thing i think mixing is basically choosing what's what's the most important story point at any given frame you know where are we going here yeah the thing that that really stuck out to me in that opening number um in the attic was how clear and present the music box felt as he was playing it and then just kind of the bigness so i watched it in in atmos on um on a really big screen in town. And I hadn't been in this particular theater yet. And so it was a big, it was kind of almost cavernous. It was huge. And so when things got big, they got, they got really big and far away almost in that particular room. It was an interesting juxtaposition between the, the clear and present music box playing the same notes as what the orchestra was doing in a much bigger kind of way around it, with his vocals still being right there, kind of in the same place as the music box. Yeah, you see, there's a great story point. I think that music box personified his wife that he's lost and her her necklace was in the box. And so the focal point story there was that box. And it was important that that box started that song off, started that melody off. So it started from that point and then everything else grows from that. And that's a classic case in point of how story drives the choices that you make. You know, you have to suspend disbelief with the musical much more than you would any other sort of movie. And I think that part of Rob's plan with that was to subtly introduce the concept of singing early on to an audience so that by the time you get to the next piece, you're sort of not, you're sort of in the groove, you know. So you you have to slowly sort of encourage people into that world. It's not, you can't just kind of 
needle drop them into it, you know. So that's what that, I think that's what that song did really effectively. Another musical moment I really enjoyed was at the very end when they were all on balloons and I'm hearing the perspectives change of my, of the vocalists as they're kind of coming uh, to in a way that from the center of the screen. I thought that was really cool. I'm glad you spotted that. <laughs> no, yeah, it was it was super clear to me. I know, no, I was right in the front of the theater. So. Oh right, you know what? I should go and sit at the front of the theater and see what it sounds like sometime. <laughs> but uh, probably very different. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Rob Rob's aesthetic is quite particular. It's he wants it to feel real. So he wants to feel like the the performances are genuine and our actors are singing. But at the same time, he wants it to be dramatic. He's a Broadway guy and, you know, he he loves the sort of drama of it and that's what he wants. It's a fine line between going too far down the road of keeping it real and then going too far the other way. Interesting, it was one I learned on Into the Woods more than anything. We, uh, there was quite a lot more opportunity for sort of vocal perspective in that movie just because it was based outside a lot they're in woods or castles or and so my first sort of run through on a reel i built in quite a lot more movement in the vocal performance and and it, and it just went over the line for him he was like oh i don't want it to feel like too real you know <laughs> <laughs> i then had to dial back a bit and make it a bit more sort of uh of a sort of performance thing and uh, and yet with some of that built in and we found i found where his aesthetic was with that in on that movie and so I, I was quite keen to maintain that with this, having spent time finding it before. It's somewhere between real and non-real. You know, that's where it is most of the time. But on that piece, it's, it's as you spotted, they're, they're moving around as you see them. But the feeling is that hopefully together they sound like an integrated ensemble that isn't taking you out of the music. You know, it's, it's all part of a performance. Well, it was almost like an old school bluegrass band where they would all come around one mic and, you know, whoever was going to solo would kind of step up and the other people would step back a little bit. It felt like that kind of dynamic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And also it was the last one in the movie. So it was like a goodbye from every character. They all had their little moment. You know, it was it's a fun it's a fun piece. Yeah, I love that. Did you feel any kind of extra weight taking on a film that the original is such an iconic film? And did you have any ideas of how to kind of match the sonic world of the original film? I know it's Mary Poppins and there's a lot of people that love the original, but this is a new film. I was keen to just do it justice, obviously, but I, I never, I didn't really feel that. But, but one thing I did feel very clearly, actually, early on, was the importance of maintaining a sort of classic quality to it. It was interesting watching the movie for the first time, and I think I mentioned it earlier, it had this old Hollywood kind of charm to it that I hadn't seen for a long time. I think the movie dictated a certain sort of reverence, if you like, to the original. It sort of it sort of asked to be respectful uh, to where it came from. So when we started mixing it, you know, the temptation with all the facilities we have now, Atmos and hundreds of tracks and, and, and everything we have at our fingertips was, you know, the temptation is to sort of go, right, let's use it. But the score was was so beautifully done and so so nicely recorded and so classic sounding that I was keen to maintain a very fronty kind of feel for the music, which I realized quite late in the mixing process was, had a slight vintage nature to it. It wasn't, it was never showy in any sense. It was always, it was always felt like it just belonged to the story. It never took you out of the story. And so I, I didn't sort of go to pull off the, the screen much with, with specific instruments, only only in certain cases, like in the in the animation section, there's a there's a big reel with 
which is mainly animated. And that point, we sort of went for it a bit more because we could. <laughs> there was a lovely sort of vintage feel to it. I said the word reverence, and I suppose that's what I mean for the original. Uh, and not get too showy, but just to feel feel very much like it was coming from the same place that that, that movie came from. And I think it's one of those unsaid things that we, we never really sat around a table and said, let's keep it like this. It just sort of asked for us to do that in, an, in, a, in a lovely sort of way. So what kind of stuff did you put in the Atmos panners? Musically, there were some overheads recorded, some reverbs and things that got in there. Uh, but in terms of the structure of the main orchestrated music, there was very little going on there. Vocally, we did quite a bit of work in there, especially in the big sort of vocal sections. Uh, in the in the Dalton Hall, where there's a huge sort of ensemble of singing animals that are going along, um, a lot of them ended up in the ceiling because we just had to find somewhere to put them. <laughs> uh, and we were in a music hall, so we had this lovely sort of uh, license to use the ceiling and the surrounds in a way that we might not elsewhere in the movie. We put them all over the place, and actually I think it makes this lovely sort of big ensemble of sort of raucous uh, fun, you know, that that was that's what we we're looking for in that piece. And I think we really went for it in terms of the Atmos stuff in that in that section. And that was a real fun thing. But I think one of the things about Atmos is if you use it all the time, it becomes a bit generic. And I think you find your moment for that stuff. And then suddenly it's like, wow, it's a wow thing rather than just like getting used to it. And so we were quite cautious about where we did that. You know, I think it really does open up quite significantly in that section. And it's, it really plays that way to me. Yeah, for sure. Mike, I wonder if we could step back from Mary Poppins for one second and talk about what might have been the previous film you mixed, the Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. That movie blew me away. I, it was so much fun. Like, how could two movies be almost so different from each other and still be huge productions between Mary Poppins and Mission Impossible? They're, one's full of explosions and one's full of music, but they both uh, were big and bombastic in their own ways. Well, interestingly, I literally finished Mission Impossible on the Friday and started Mary Poppins on Monday. Wow. It was that tight. And, um, you know, it became like Mary Impossible at one point. It was like this, <laughs> that the first week was like, why the hell isn't Mary defusing a nuclear bomb? And it was like, you know, why is it so quiet? And what's going on? You know, it's just, it's hard. It was hard to sort of shift from one, from one completely different movie to the next, you know. And I think it's one of the things that I love about this business and the bit that I do in it is that it's everything. It's, it's always so different, you know. Fundamentally, very, very different movies and, and the demands on those entirely different. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, Rob's process is extremely well planned and organized and you sort of know each day what you're going to be doing and it's got a great structure to it. And, and that's great in its own right. And, but Mission Impossible is, is, the, is probably the antithesis of that. It's, <laughs> it's sort of chaos in, in a great way. And Chris McQuarrie is a wonderful director. They had a tight post schedule. You know, they had a lot of material to get through. We had a lot to do in a short time. There was a great energy to it and, you know, a lot of instinctive choices made. And we had, I'd done one, we did Rogue Nation before, so I had a good shorthand with, with the filmmakers there. Uh, Eddie Hamilton, the, the editor on that show, is a, is a good friend. So there's a great workflow that we have. You know, I, I pre-dub early as he's cutting it. It's, the whole thing is just a wonderful sort of like rush to the finish line. And I think part of what makes the energy on those movies is that I'm sure it's the same when they shoot it. It's just this 
great energy that is is like necessity it's like we've got to get this shot we've got to get this reel done you know it's just this sort of uh run to the finish line and it's 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 <laughs> you know it, it shows when you watch it it's just like whoa everyone's running like as fast as they can here you know the whole time you know aesthetically we knew exactly what what we wanted to do with it again it was a similar aesthetic to road nation which we spent a lot longer on just because we had more time during that mix but we knew we it was a part b to that effectively and it's like let's just stay exactly where we where we want to be and again that film is absolutely laser guided story it knows exactly what it is the whole time it's like we know where every single shot what what needs to we used to work here and what doesn't and um it was a, a lot of fun to do but god yeah talk about two different movies yeah that film gets a lot of accolades for the clarity of the mix for how how well you can hear everything in it yeah, I, it's interesting. I had a lot of a lot of people write to me after that as well, and, and and you know you think, wow, it was such a rush to get there that I wasn't surprised, I guess. But uh, at the same time, you kind of think, wow, okay, I wonder how we did that. So as you jump from that film on Friday to Mary Poppins on Monday, how do you handle your own, I guess, personal pacing of your of yourself and of your fatigue and anything on on those lines? Yeah, that's hard. Um, that's why he's in the Alps now. Right. <laughs> I could see those two colliding and it was like, oh, shit, here we go. <laughs> Having worked with both directors before, it does make a big difference because you understanding what it is they want, what their aesthetic is how, and how they work and the expectations does is, is really a big part of the job. You know, here we are talking about sound and mixing and the technicalities of all this stuff. I'd say that was like half the job. You know, the other half really is finding the consensus, diplomatizing issues, pulling people together, getting some forward momentum and progress and all the things that, that the sort of diplomatic tasks of, it, of running a room forward and, and, and find the movie. Having experienced both directors before, I kind of knew how that worked with those guys. So that really helps. And to be honest, if you've got that down, it then becomes a much more of a sort of technical exercise, which in itself is achievable you know i can go yeah i can mix these movies that's fine i can do them both if i was mixing those two movies with people i'd never been with it would have been a whole different world you know whole different thing thank you very much this was awesome we really appreciate you taking the time a great pleasure really nice to chat to you about that cheers bye We're super lucky today because our guest is Renee Tundeli. Based out of LA, she has a long career in sound editing, ADR and dialogue editing, and sound supervising. Some of her more notable projects are Deepwater Horizon, for which she earned an Oscar nomination, Django Unchained, and Into the Woods, directed by Rob Marshall. She is also the co-supervising editor on Marshall's latest film, Mary Poppins Returns. Welcome to the show, Renee. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for having me, Tim. So how did you get into sound editing to begin with? You know, it's an interesting job because I don't think, I think now it's a much more straightforward approach. There's schools that you can actually go to for this and you're able to have a more of an upstream flow to it. But when I started, there really wasn't any way to get to it. You just sort of showed up and was hoping that someone would hire you. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I started in radio. So radio was where I first learned how to tell stories through sound. It was really fun to work in radio because I worked also in the news department and in the production and we would create shows that would have to cover an hour and we would come up with all kinds of fun ideas and ways of telling that story. 
So that was really my first intro into sound editing. And then I went to film school while I was in Chicago. Then I came out here and I needed a job. And I had a friend who was a music editor and she said, you know, you should go down to Canon Films. And I thought, oh, Canon Films, great. You know, so I went there and the head sound editor at the time said, well, uh, can you start right now? <laughs> and and I said, uh, I, I was supposed to meet my friend for tea, but he said, well, if you can start right now, you have the job. And I said, okay, I'll start. And that's how I got into film. It was funny because, uh, you know, Canon was a place that the code of Canon was that you either ended your career or started it there. So it was a perfect time for me. And you you got thrown into doing five or six films at once, and you had to do all kinds of different things. And so it was a, a pretty good trial by fire for me to start out. So you started off in Chicago? That's where you're from? Yeah, I'm from Chicago. How scary was it to move out to L.A. for you? Well, you know, it's so funny because everybody always, I mean, whenever you say I'm moving to L.A., people are like, oh, that's impossible. Do you know how hard it is to get into the business? You'll never make it, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? Somebody's got to make it. Why not me? You know, so I just jumped and, and went for it. I actually was married to someone at the time who was a producer, and he had gotten, his company had moved out here, so we moved out together and I thought, oh, this is great. I can really pursue my dreams now. And then after two weeks, he got fired. <laughs> so then it was like, okay, I guess I need to start working now. So that's how I ended up at Canon. Pretty much I owe it to him for getting fired. So <laughs> <laughs> so early in your career, uh, when you go on to IMDb, you're doing mostly ADR editing and dialogue editing early on, and then uh, you transition into more sound supervising. How, how did that transition come about? You know, it was funny. Dialogue to me was really interesting because, you know, when you look at the world of sound editing, it can be very um, departmentalized. And directing was really what I wanted to do. I know it's crazy to say that, but that's what I wanted to do. And it seemed to be, for me, the most direct way to deal with that in sound because you could deal with the director and the actors and you were dealing with performances and and I loved that I really enjoyed that part of it and and you know the elements of group are really another element of sound effects so it was always fun to create some fun new way of doing something and and even at and back at that time when I started ADR was you know, you would have sometimes five ADR editors. Everybody was doing, you know, you did a lot more because we didn't have isotope back then, you know. So, <laughs> and you ended up having, you know, there was a lot of live shooting and it was just a different world and, and it was more acceptable. So ADR was really tricky back then because the goal was, of course, to make it sound like they were really doing that performance and not sound like ADR, which everybody hates. So... Um, through that process, I, that's sort of what I was drawn to. And then I started working with Wiley Statement, who is just amazing and very, very talented. And I just said to him one day, hey, I want to supervise. And he looked at me and went, oh, okay. And then from that point on, you know, he let me co-supervise with him. And, and it just went from there. And I, I really think it comes down to just asking. Because people just don't 
you know, no one is going to say, hey, you know what, I think it's time for Renee to start supervising. I mean, you know, <laughs> you basically have to ask for things because people don't, they can't help you if they don't know what you want. Well, you also have to be ready. Yeah. You know, you can't just go in on your second day and be like, why aren't I supervising? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's very true. That's very true. Although I will say that you definitely need to take chances because I remember one of the first jobs that I did. I mean, I I had only done like two movies and I was working on War of the Roses. And one of my friends said, you should talk to the supervisor there and and have him teach you how to do ADR because he's really good at it. Right. He had done, you know, ADR on Star Wars or something. So I said, I asked him and he looked at me and was like, hmm, all right. And <laughs> did nothing about it. Right. But he had overextended himself on this particular show because he was the sound supervisor. He was the sound effects supervisor. He was the mixer and he was the ADR supervisor. And so one day I got a call and he said, uh, do you still want to do this? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, come down, bring a pad of paper, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. It's like, okay. So I went down on the stage, and he said, uh, all right, know when to call sync. Even if you don't know sync, just pretend like you do. Don't ever let them think you don't know sync. And I went, okay, always pretend like you know sync. And then he said, and never fraternize with the actors. Don't fraternize with the actors. Now get out of here. You got Michael Douglas in 15 minutes. And I mean, that was <laughs> That was my training. And honestly, had I not told him, I would have never been able to do that. And and I didn't know really what I was doing. I had never shot ADR before. So I showed up on the stage with Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas and James Brooks. And I was, I just thought, well, just wing it, you know, pretend like you know what you're doing. And, and basically, <laughs> what I did. And, um, you know, so I I do think there's an element of really taking chances that you need to do. For sure. You mentioned earlier about how when you first started, it was just kind of by chance that they wanted to hire you right away. I had a similar thing where I sent in a a resume to a studio via fax. So that shows how old I am. Uh, (laughs) And uh, apparently the studio owner and the studio manager were standing beside this fax machine, drinking coffee, talking about how they had to hire somebody. And my fax rolled in in between them. And I got a phone call literally like 36 seconds after I hit send on the fax. And the next day I started working. So, uh, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, and also along those lines is that that studio had hired me and was kind of pushing me towards mixing and I didn't really want to mix as much. I wanted to do more sound editing. And uh, one day I just w- walked in and kind of did a similar thing and said, I want to try doing this. And from that day on, I got pushed in a different direction and that's my career so far. So yeah, it, it is a thing that no one's going to read your mind and guess what you want to do. They're just going to kind of, sometimes you just get swept up by the flow of the stream though. And if you don't take charge... Who knows where it'll take you? It's absolutely true. It really is. And I think even women, as women, I think we are more reluctant to do that, that um, men are better at that. They just say, sure, why not? Where I think we really feel like we need to have years and years of training and we need to really be prepared for this. And um, I, I think that's changing because I think this world has completely cracked open now, and I think it's wonderful. There's just so many more women, and people even know about the job. I mean, you know, it's a very, it's a, it, our job is often difficult to explain, and 
a lot of people didn't even know about it. Like when you talk to normal people out there, lay people, it's like, oh, the sound was great. Well, the music was wonderful. It's like, no, that's not the sound. But <laughs> well, the the I love the the composer. No, that's not the sound. <laughs> and it's really difficult to try to explain it. But I think that there's a lot of that awareness right now, and it's specifically becoming aware to women, which is great, because I think there's a great sensibility that we bring to it, too, which is wonderful. So for Mary Poppins, congratulations on that. It's a really great film, by the way. You did a fantastic job. And uh, I'm just wondering, when you signed on to work on that, did you feel any weight of history because it's kind of a, the original was an iconic film? or did No you... pressure. <laughs> 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 of course we did. It was like, oh my God, look, you're treading on this jewel. And by the way, for its time, it was quite ahead of its time. I mean, yeah. what they did in the animation world and making a live horse race go on while they're on these these carousel ponies. And I mean, it was just really amazing. So we looked at this and said, this was a very special film. And they went way above and beyond what they did. So we need to go even farther with what we do. So all of us, first of all, loved it. And we all loved the film growing up. And we took it with great care in our hands. Um, one, you know, our production, our music and dialogue mixer is Mike Presswood-Smith, who is British. And we had a few Brits on our team. So they were always kind of, you know, eyeing us going, you know, they they knew they knew how precious it was too, and it it was really something that we approached with, um, very very carefully. How long was the schedule for it between when you signed on and when you started doing the uh, the final mix? Well, with Rob, you know, he really takes his time with it, um, and it's amazing what he does. So we were on it for a year. I was there for with Rob for the read-through, so we were able to set up mics and record it, and it was sort of the first time I got to read the script and hear the songs, and it was pretty exciting yeah, at that point. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but that was maybe six months or so before we actually started, before we hit the ground, so it was about a year. When we actually started, we got complete reels. Now, when the reels arrived, they were pencil drawings and um, green screens. So we didn't we didn't know what the animation was going to look like. We were just being told by the animation director, who was Jim Capobianco, really amazing. So he would tell us that this is what's going to happen. And, and Eugene Garrity, who is our main sound designer on the film, had the big task of doing the whole chase scene in the Royal Dalton Hall. Mm -hmm. And that was tricky because that was coming in late, you know, rather late, just because of the nature of how it was to draw it. And so he, <laughs> Eugene was constantly getting these updates where all of a sudden, you know, it would be a big smokestack that wasn't there before or <laughs> sparks coming off. And so he had, he had, uh, he was working up until the very end and, and the sound effect and sometimes the visual effects guys would change the speed of it, which worked before, and then he'd have to recut it basically on the final. So it was, that was part of the process, but we, we eventually started to get things, and the more flushed out it became, the more flushed out we were able to go with our soundtrack. Well, how did you come up with the steam engine sound? Well, actually, the, it was a Stanley steamer that was originally put in there by Jim, the animation director. 
So um, when we got that, of course, we were like, do you want to keep this Stanley Steamer sound? And Rob was like, yeah, I really like it. So Eugene went with John Casal to, out to L.A. and went to Jay Leno's garage. He opened up. Of course, he had a Stanley Steamer. He got up. He wanted to, yeah, he had to light it underneath the, the car. That's how you start these steamers. And he wanted to drive it, so Eugene and John actually recorded the Stanley Steamer. Um, the problem with the Stanley Steamer is it's very consistent in its rhythm. And when you're doing a chase scene, it just becomes boring. It, there's no, there's nothing getting more and more and more and more faster and exciter. It's just... So Eugene had... Eugene took... Uh, steam engines, and he we sped up the Stanley Steamer. We did a whole bunch of stuff to make that um, be more exciting and and uh, and happy to go. But yeah, we that was Eugene. He he did the Stanley Steamer, but the task which was always fun and challenging in that particular scene and that whole animation world was to create this ceramic world that you believed you were really in the ceramic world and you can paint things and show things but a wonderful way to do that is really through sound we played around with a lot of impulse responses inside of porcelain bowls different sizes different shapes porcelain sinks porcelain bowls and then we came up with four or five or six responses that we really liked and we fed the dialogue through that and the feet through that. And it had this wonderful resonance that you felt like you really were inside this bowl. And we had to carry that on throughout the entire process, except once we were in the hall. Mm-hmm. That was where the, the animators decided the ceramic world would, would not exist. So we made that just a music hall. But Eugene had the task of making this very exciting, scary nightmarish chase and also very powerful with a horse and a and a steam engine and all these things happening but also make sure that it still remained inside the bowl so that was part of his challenge on that which was really i think he did a really good job on that yeah he certainly pulled it off the the fun thing about that scene is that it starts off for those who haven't seen the film yet there, there's a, a scene in the movie the ki- children that Mary Poppins is looking after uh, chips a bowl and they're very scared that this bowl is going to be broken and they're going to get in trouble. And Mary Poppins uh, kind of through a tornado-y whirlwind whisks them inside the bowl and the bowl is all painted with characters and those characters come to life. So there, there's a like maybe 20 minute scene, maybe longer actually. Yeah. You don't actually see the ceramic bowl, which is what you're meaning why you have to kind of keep that feeling alive through the sound. And it's done really well. Uh, But then once we go into the Royal Dalton Theater, uh, as you say, that kind of fades away and you're in a theater and the crowd is populated with just pure insanity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Animated animals of every stripe. And uh, it's meant to be kind of an old vaudevillian crowd that's not going to sit prim and proper and listen to the performance. So how did you fill that out? Because there's... 
I was going to say extras, but they're cartoons, so they're not really extras. But you had to voice this crowd in very specific ways. And I imagine that that didn't take one afternoon. No, that was really, really fun. It was uh, a traditional music hall, which you're right. It's very body and loud and boisterous. And they talk back to the stage and they yell and they sing along. And, and Rob said, you know, I want this to really sound like a music hall. So we had... We talked a lot about how we were going to give them voices because we didn't want it to be cartoony or, or cliched. So we really wanted them to be, you know, British Isle citizens of all, of all <laughs> shapes and sizes. So I went to London and I worked with this wonderful uh, voice caster named Phoebe Schofield. And she, the way they work in London is they do half days the group people. So in the morning, I would have 10 people. And in the afternoon, I would have 10 different people or 12 or 13. And this went on for seven days. Wow. And they all had to sing, by the way, because there is a time where they're all singing the choruses to Mary's songs, because of course, they've all know Mary, and they, they're all excited. So they come to hear Mary sing the song. And they all had to sing the song with their accent, with their animal character, and be in tune. So it was really a challenge to get all of that happening. And and to cast it was really fun because we just did it on the fly. We would sit, be in the room and say, okay, see that frog right there? He's dressed up like a dandy. Who wants to be him? And, you know, five or six people would do a voice for him. And I would, everybody would go, oh, he's the best. He's the best. <laughs> so we would get, you know, we were sort of casting on the fly. And we ended up getting, you know, deep, deep baritones for the moose and then, you know, sopranos for the flamingos and... And at the time, it wasn't totally flushed out still. We were still getting animation in. But so I did a lot of wild stuff about what I would imagine that they would sound like. And there was all these responses to the songs. I went a little bit too far to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mike Presswood and I loved it. We just thought, oh, my God, this is the best. And Rob came in and he looked at us and he, and he said, Renee, this, this is a Disney film, okay? You got to tone it back a little bit. So we did. And it was really fun to do that. And, and I thought that that worked really well. So when you go into the mix with the two mics, are you the kind of sound supervisor that sits in the back and lets them do their job? Or are you uh, pointing out what they are missing and get this sound up? And how do you approach it? I'm sure they wish I was the one that sat in the back. And <laughs> but, but no, I, uh, you know, I worked with Wiley Statement for many years. And uh, I guess I sort of learned a lot from him. And pretty much I sit there between them, you know, at, this, at oh, the wow. council the whole time. And we have such a great working relationship. I love those two guys, the mics, we call them. They're amazing. Like in Rob's films, one of the big element is the Foley because he's, his choreography is so brilliant and so complex. It's just layers on layers on layers. Like the Trip the Light Fantastic, the scene where all the Learys are dancing in the park. I always hire... The choreographers, who I know, they're the same ones on every film, so it's great. Joey Pizzi and Tara Hughes, they come out, and they came to New York because we did all the posts in New York, and they hired eight New York dancers, and they trained them and taught them all the songs. Dancers are amazing. In two days, they learned all the songs. And then we went to uh, C5 Foley, where 
Marco and George, their amazing Foley team, Marco actually brought in and had made for me, I wanted a slate floor. And we tried all these different, we went to, <laughs> bought a whole bunch of different slates and sounds and, and stones. And then we tried laying them all over and dancing on them. They did. And I said, no, that sounds too hollow. That sounds too hollow. So he actually hired a stone mason wow. who came in and laid down a sand floor for us and sunk all of the slate in it. And he had this great uh, pig iron pipe that was just this big, large pipe that had these great sounds to it when you would kick it. So it sounded like we used that for the lamppost. And we brought in the dancers, and for six or seven days, we recorded all the foley. For that particular scene, there's layers and layers and layers of foley. So the background dancers are doing something different than the foreground, than the mid, than the, you know, then there's people flipping and flopping and, you know, so they did all of that. And um, even though everyone's doing something different, it's all part of the orchestration of the song. So everything has to be in impeccable timing. For sure. So to edit it, you know, I would edit this particular dancer doing this and this, and then I would, you know, you edit with music, you don't edit mm. to sync. Um, you, you would be in trouble if you edit it to sync. Yeah. So, so then you do that and then you play all of them back and then you have to start fudging those to make sure that they all sound in sync with the music. So it's a very complicated process to go through. And then I gave it to Michael Keller, who was wonderful with it. He just took it and spread it out and he was great. So yeah, I, I'm, I probably to their chagrin, I'm one of those supervisors that sits up there and, and pays attention to everything and is always, you know, <laughs> hopefully kindly giving my opinion. <laughs> you mentioned Foley. Did you have two full Foley teams for this picture? Yes, we did. We had two amazing teams. Um, one we used in Canada, uh, Footsteps, Andy Malcolm's team. They're great. Andy's and a friend they, of the podcast, so he's been on, and uh, he's a great guy. I love Andy. I, I mean, he's just, he's almost like a Disney character in himself because <laughs> he's so kind and so sweet and so happy all the time. You know, he's just great. Um, and he is so, the, his team is amazingly talented. Like they really worked. Eugene and I, one of the first things we wanted to tackle was this ceramic sound um, because it was one of the scenes, you know, we knew that that was going to help sell this ceramic world from the beginning for Rob. So we wanted to do the feet, we wanted to do the voices and all that stuff. So Andy spent a lot of time doing tests for us because, of course, he was in Toronto and we were in New York, he would do something. We'd go, mm, no, it sounds a little bit like a toilet bowl. Then he would go back and <laughs> try something different. And finally, we ended up with marble feet. So, and they were great, you know, like the way they walk, like every child has a different pitch. Every single person has a different pitch to their walk. So that was just phenomenal. They walked on marble and then they also, with a drum mallet, every time someone walked, kind of played a porcelain sink. So the porcelain sink had this beautiful ring off to it that laid on top of the marble floor. He was just great. He did a lot of that kind of work for us, you know, that we really, really loved. And Andy built a cobblestone road for us out of cobblestones. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, he's just great. He's fantastic. 
thank you very much for talking to us. It was a really great conversation. Oh, thank you. Now we're moving on to the FX mixer, Michael Keller. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Michael's selected credits include Batman vs. Superman, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, and It before he jumped on the Mary Poppins film. Uh, those are some pretty cool films also. It was it was fun. What are the first couple of things that you do to get yourself ready and get yourself into the film? First, when I got the call, I watched the old one again to just get an idea of what they've done back then. And and certainly, you know, after that many years, movie making has changed quite a bit in terms of pacing. So then my next call was out to Rene Tondelli and Eugene, who were the sound supervisors and the sound designers and just getting, a, you know, an idea of what this movie is about, because I thought that this is a remake. I never paid attention that it says returns at the end. And, and sure enough, you know, it's a continuation. So uh, they they all educated us and said, no, 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 this is like, you know, way later now. And now the kids are adults and they have their own kids and they need help and so on. And then we were told that there's going to be a temp up in New York around Christmas time last year. And uh, we never saw the film before. I don't think we were able to watch it in Los Angeles or Mike in London. So I think we just showed up in New York. Uh, obviously, we talked to Rene and Eugene beforehand to just talk about uh, how big the sessions are and what the expectations are. And Rob Marshall's temps are pretty flushed out. He spends a lot of time to get that right. Um, and, and I'm happy that he does because there's many movies out there that don't want to spend the money up front, which is also a valid point. But if you're trying to show the studio or a preview audience, you know, your first cut, uh, it better perform well, because if it doesn't, um, everybody's up in arms and says, oh, we have a big problem. We need to reshoot. We need to blah, blah, blah. So Rob spends, I think we spent like 15 days, which is a pretty long time. No, sometimes there's temp ups that are three days, some are five days. And then the massive sci-fi movies, they, you know, they, uh, we've spent up to like 20 days. But I think with Rob, we had 15. That gives us, you know, a day or two per reel. And they are big because it's not just some tempt up score that you get from some other movie. Uh, Rob's movie uh, with a musical, obviously, you have pre-recorded temp score with an orchestra. And you obviously have the performances from the set. And you might have pre-records and then also some pickup. So it's quite involved to get that all flushed out and stitched together. And the beauty about a temp dub is that you really learn, it sounds stupid, but what the movie wants. And some people ask us in interviews saying, you know, how did you prepare yourself for this Mary Poppins versus what the old Mary Poppins was or what any other movie is? And it's kind of dictated by the movie itself. That's why I have a hard time in interviews going into job interviews, because unless I see it, it's kind of hard to explain what you're going to do with it. I think it's easier for a sound designer that that reads the script and then they can, you know, go out and record and 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 have all those great experiences, those great sound effects, but for a mixer you kind of need to hear it all together with the dialogue and the music and the ADR to really understand what needs to be done and and that's what that first tempt up was. We just go in and you just start chipping away at it, you know, one scene at a time. And uh, normally the workflow works that Mike does a dialogue music pass either on the whole reel or just on a scene. And so figure he spends an hour to just get a scene together to get, you know, the, the basic sound pressure level right. 
and then I come in and I work around it. And on a musical, the music music is king and, and any other dialogue movie, dialogue's king. So we always need to work around it to make sure we're helping the story, we're making it exciting, um, but we can't obviously clobber dialogue or lyrics. So then once my pass is in, uh, then Mike goes back in and then he fine tunes around my material to just finesse it a little bit more because I tend to cover him up a little bit too much and then he <laughs> reworks his material a little bit. And, you know, it's a give and take. And uh, with him, it's a really good experience. We have a great shorthand and we have very, very similar tastes. So if he goes into a scene like, say, the, uh, the horse chase, the chariot race, um, he gives me enough room in the big events and I don't have to constantly fight to get through the music. So if he does his dialogue music pass, he protects his dialogue on his own. Uh, the score is quite big in there. If you have a big close-up of a wheel or a big flame poof coming out of the, the burner, if I have a 40-foot big screen and I have a giant flame coming out of that thing, then I'm probably going to hit it. So there's no sense to hit it on, on both ends and just make it a mess or unnecessarily loud. So it's a constant back and forth between who leads here and there um, and, uh, yeah, that's how we work our way through. And then obviously the sound editorial department is involved. The music department is involved. Everybody has their opinion and, and has their time and, and gets their time to, you know, to finesse and to, to value their thoughts. So Mike and I, we get going first and then the music department might come in and say, Hey, listen, we've worked with this queue for a year with Rob in the cutting room and, uh, there's this piccolo line that we might not be aware of. And then Eugene, uh, our sound designer, co-sound supervisor, might come in and says, hey, you know what? I have this cool little growl flame sweetener that would really work well there. And then we feature that. And so we, we just chip away. And then normally after the first day, if we've done our first pass, um, the picture editor comes in, Wyatt Smith who obviously is really intimately familiar with the, the process that, that Rob needs and wants and you know what all the flavors are in the soundtrack that we are not aware of because we're new to the project and then we do his notes and then by the afternoon of the second day Rob comes in and then we play him a reel which normally is 20 you know 15 or 20 minutes long and then he gives us his notes and that's how how we pretty much work our whole way through the movie um, always, uh, always keeping in mind that we shouldn't be too loud in certain sections or not too loud for too long. That you really only learn once you screen the whole film, you know, all six or seven reels stitched together to understand if you're too bombastic. After all, this is a family movie, so it shouldn't be overly aggressive. Right. And as you and, and Mike are collaborating, um, when he's doing his pass, are you, are you in the room watching him work? Are you taking a break? Are you working around him? How does that work? I'm normally in the room. I mean, it depends. If it's really late and our ears are burned out, then I normally go out of the room. But on the first pass, certainly we're all together um, just to understand what's there. Because if he does a pass and then I start throwing in some loud, some loud sound effects, I might not hear all the little delicate details that are in the score. So normally we play it just music and dialogue faders up and play the reel down and uh, to understand what the emotion is and what the music does and on a temp up, we're fresh. We come in, you know, sometimes we haven't even seen the movie. Once we all understand what's there, then Mike starts chipping away. And, you know, after hearing the same cue 20 times, we pretty much all leave the room and <laughs> let him go at it 
till lunch and then normally it's sound effects time after that and then vice versa so as someone doing re-recording of the sound effects do you prefer the sound editor sound designers sound supervisor to be really vocal with you or do you want someone to just sit in the back of the room and answer your questions as you come to them it's funny because there's two kinds they're really hyper people that <laughs> sit on your lap and they're nervous all day long um but the seasoned guys they are not they you know, they just let you do your thing. And my approach is always that I play the sound designer's tracks flat, not necessarily at zero. Otherwise, I'm going to get my head blown off. I, if they bring me 20 sound effects pre-dubs that, you know, sound designers now pre-pan, and I'm glad that they do because time is limited and the movies as complex as they get, they do a fantastic job working at that stuff for months way before we get started. So stuff's flying all over the place and they have some great ideas and some, you know, great pre-dubs if you want to call them. And then we come in and I play it flat at say minus five or minus 10, depending on the scene. And then I understand what their intent was. Mm -hmm. Real pre-dubs only really work if you play it in a large room and you play it against the temp dialogue and you play it against the temp music at full level to work around it, to work everything around everything else. And if you are sitting in a designer room, in the design suite where you need to come up with sound elements and you need to balance them against each other, I don't think you have the time to really balance it 100% right against the music, which might not even exist yet. For sure. And against the dialogue. So don't get me wrong, the, the design process is phenomenal these days. And I love what they do. What I don't appreciate if because it has been pre-panned and pre-dubbed in a design suite that the pre-dub process should be eliminated. And I 100% disagree on that, where I think with the time that the designer spent to pre-dub and pre-pan and pre-balance and design, if you then spend yet another 15 days of pre-dubbing it in a large theater with the temp score and a temp dialogue track that has been addressed by a dialogue mixer, you're going to reach the 100% mark. And I think if you take that away with as hectic as finals get, you're never going to really understand what's underneath your fingers. You know, Or in my case, I'm not as familiar with the material as a sound designer is. So there's some discussion where designers say, well, then I should mix my own stuff. There's two sides to that. Yes, you definitely know all your material that you've prepared over the last year. But other hand, can you still sit back and say, well, this sound now doesn't work with the music anymore and I have no attachment to it, so I'm just going to take it out. Or I'm going to you know, play lower to clear for that piccolo that now you know, the music department wants. And there's a back and forth. And there are certainly designers that do a fantastic job, you know, like Gary Reister and, and, and guys that, that just detach themselves and say, well, you know, I'm not in love with my stuff. And yeah, I worked on that for months but it's clearly not working with the current orchestration, so I'm just going to dump it. But I can totally understand that if you work a long time on a sound and then all of a sudden there's a piccolo that rubs with it tonality-wise, and now everybody says, well, I really want to hear this music and, I, and the sound effect does work. So if the composer mixes the final music in the movie, it's most likely going to be music heavy. If a sound effects editor mixes the, the sound effects in the final, it's most likely going to be sound effects heavy. So I think if you have two people coming in that are not biased because they haven't spent a year on this material yet, 
And I think you need somebody that that's a little bit more distanced from the project than somebody that's been on it for a year. And that's where Rob and Wyatt are also great because you have certain directors that come in and they say, well, I want it exactly how I had it in the Avid, just make it 5.1 or 7.1. People like Rob that say, here, I'm not even coming in. Just do your thing, take your ideas and present them. And then the sound department and the music department, they all chime in as well and and give us their knowledge that they've learned over a year. And then Rob comes in and says, you know what? I like it better the way you guys came up with it. Or can we do a hybrid of what he's been used to and what we've done? And the fun part of the mix is, and everybody struggles with that is in, in really busy, busy scenes, is what do you feature when and where? And you know who gets to make that choice? And, and it's just time consuming. You just experiment through and you, you figure out, you know, sometimes uh, what you see might not work the best way with the music at that current spot. So you might want to feature on something else. Say, for instance, if you're on a horse and somebody had the idea that you want to hear the horse breaths, but the music is so very, very thick, it might not work. And then you lean on the hooves. And so you constantly make choices of what reads best, you know, at current time. And that's another phenomenon that, you know, mixing in a small theater and then going to a large theater, there is there are translation issues. And, you know, some might be slight and some might be large, depending on the designer's take. If Obviously, if the designer knows his room inside out and he knows how, to, how it translates to the outside world, then that's one thing. But if you have a director and a huge client backfield in the room, they want to hear it the way it's going to sound in the theater. So, you know, you can tell them all day long, oh, yeah, it sounds so insanely loud right now, but it will, will not sound that loud and that harsh in a large room with 500 seats. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear it the way it's going to sound in the theater. And with Rob's ear, which is super sensitive, we actually took our temp up after the first day to a huge theater in New York and played him just a scene that he was comfortable, that he knew that what he heard in our dubbing stage is exactly what he wanted to hear in the theater. And we've done it after uh, the temp up. And then we've certainly heard it in numerous rooms in Los Angeles and everybody said, hey, you know what? This is spot on exactly how we mixed it in New York. And then after the first reel of the final, we did the same thing again. We got new orchestration. And after the first reel was done, we took it out again and, and played it in a massive uh, Atmos room to just make sure that it's, that it's right before we continue. That's great. I think that's a great place to wrap up for now. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. It was really interesting stuff. Good night. Bye-bye. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks so much to Mike Prestwood-Smith and Michael Keller for jumping on the podcast with us today. And don't forget a big thanks to Renee Tondelli for sitting in in the middle interview. Uh, thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonebenderspodcast.com.